Father, this song echoes Your Word. One of the Psalms tells us line after line how good You are, how faithful, how merciful. Easier to sing sometimes than to believe in the middle of a storm, so give us grace to hear Your Word and trust Your Son. In Jesus' name I pray, amen. Good morning. Welcome to Cross Point. Thank you for your many kind comments regarding this suit. I don't know why. I'm as surprised as you are, okay? Just one of those mornings. For the last few weeks, we've been in the Gospel of Luke again. We're moving slowly across it, and I called this series Jesus versus Trouble because that's what Luke wants to show us. He wants to show us Jesus in all kinds of trouble. If you've been here for the last few weeks, Jesus found Himself in the middle of a storm which threatened, from the disciples' point of view, to drown them and He along with them. He was sleeping through it. They awoke Him with panic screams, and He got up, spoke to the storm, and it was calm. They arrived safely from that journey to encounter something much worse and much more horrifying, a man from who the demons inside spoke of him and said, my name is Legion. There are many of us here. Jesus deals with him with the same calm authority that he deals with everything. He leaves that man for the first time in years clothed and in his right mind, and Jesus does not allow that man to go with him. He tells him to stay home. He said, go home and tell people what great things God has done for you. And he goes home and says, Luke's choice words, the things that Jesus did for him. Luke is showing us this picture of Jesus in all kinds of trouble being revealed increasingly. You can't escape the conclusion, this is no ordinary man, this is not another prophet, this is no mere healer or messianic leader. Those are common in Jesus' day, a hundred years before Him and a hundred years after Him. These revolutionary leaders will arise, and what generally happened with Messianic movements is that Messianic leader was killed and stayed dead, and that was the end of it. Luke is showing you in all kinds of human and spiritual trouble, Jesus is confronting trouble, and He's in charge. And especially in church… And increasingly, rarely in church, it's good for us to acknowledge that life has a great deal of trouble. Have you noticed? Life's hard. And I say that that needs to be said and it needs to be believed and Scriptures need to be read and we need to get it into our worldview when we go out from these doors and this little oasis that we've created of a worship service together The life outside these walls and even inside these walls, as you hear a biblical message, life is hard. But what's happened increasingly all across the world, it started primarily here in the United States, is that well-meaning people, well-meaning Christian leaders, I'm afraid, have said something different. They've kind of presented Jesus as a formula, and it sounds something like this. They would never say it this bluntly, but the implicit message is this. If you have Jesus, life is going to be awesome. 
Anybody see the Lego movie and its little theme song, Everything is Awesome? You take Jesus and everything is awesome. And then people trust Jesus, they take Jesus as best they can, they start following Him, and they discover that life continues to be hard, and in many cases, life gets even harder. And sickness and broken families and disease and death continue to stalk them, and too many people wonder if they've been sold a bill of goods, and they wonder if any of it's true and if Jesus is actually real. I'm so thankful for the Gospel of Luke in this section because it shows us Jesus actually moving from one tragedy to another. That's the certainty. Life is going to be hard for everyone. We live in an incredibly wonderful age through technology. We have largely succeeded in pushing death back, at least for a time. But the rich and the poor die alike. Father, time is undefeated. The selfishness in every human heart expresses itself even in the wealthiest places, and life gets very hard. That's why I'd like to tell you a better, not only a better story, but the true story. Because as a culture, we're coping poorly with the harsh difficulties of life. I've been listening for a few months to a, a guy who's admittedly secular. In fact, he's, as I've listened to him conduct about a dozen interviews, he's leaning increasingly mystical. He's the guy you hated in high school, unless you were that guy, and frankly, not many of us were, right? I certainly wasn't. He's Ivy League educated. He is a world championship athlete. He's the author of several books. He's just done, he's crushed it in everything. Like I, I, when I was a missionary, I would sometimes follow uh, another future missionary into churches. This guy had been a Marine fighter pilot. He had then moved over to the Navy, gone to Top Gun, done so well, they kept him as an instructor. He looked like the Marine Corps recruiting poster, and he was a national championship accordion player, believe it or not. <laughs> so my brother-in-law, I was at my brother-in-law's church, and then Lance came the next week, and my brother-in-law called me just to tell me, Bruce, you're garbage. You know Spanish, big deal. A lot of people know Spanish. This guy, this is what we're talking about. That's the guy I've been listening to on the podcast. But for once, just a few days ago, I heard him turn the questions on himself. I listened to him, not for what he's going to say, but for what he's going to draw out of others, the incredible interviews he conducts with world-class achievers. But he did a strange podcast. He had a guest, and he asked his guests the questions, but then he turned them right back on himself, and he answered them for himself. And in a rare moment of incredible candor, he explained that his life, his achievements, his enviable life all boiled down to one thing. He hates himself. And he said, I discovered early on that I could hone myself into an instrument of competition. And I could compete, and I thought if I could compete and win and achieve enough, then I would begin to accept myself. And I can tell from what he said, he's still on the journey. And it broke my heart, and it was another reminder that you sometimes get in life that appearances are deceiving, and the life that everybody envies is actually loathed by the person who's living in it. 
And that's why the Gospels tell us with unvarnished reality the lives of real people in real trouble. And Jesus is right there with them. Look in Luke chapter 8 and you'll see what I mean. And the first verse alone is one of those verses that tells me that Jesus can't catch a break. He's been through the storm. He's confronted the demoniac who called himself Legion. And in Luke 8, verse 40, it says, now when Jesus returned, I'm in Luke 8, verse 40, it would really help you to have a Bible because this is a longer story. When Jesus returned, the crowd welcomed Him for they were all waiting for Him. Can you imagine it from Jesus' point of view for just a second, just how burdensome this was? Everywhere you go, there's a crowd waiting. And everybody's got trouble, and trouble comes in all shapes and sizes, but they're waiting. He literally can't catch a breath. And there came a man named Jairus who was a ruler of the synagogue. And falling at Jesus' feet, he implored him to come to his house, for he had an only daughter, about 12 years of age, and she was dying. Every parent's nightmare. The last thing any of us would want in our family. Any loving, sensible parent would sooner die themselves than have their child die. And here's Jairus, a ruler of the synagogue, and that little phrase in Matthew's gospel and in Jesus' time carries a lot of weight. He's a well-respected person. He is the religious center of his community. In first century Judaism, everything was woven around the synagogue. It was quite actually literally the place to be on a Sabbath, and he's in charge. He has that kind of esteem, that kind of prestige in the community, but now there is something that has come into his life that no prestige, no respect, apparently no amount of money, and no prayers that he has screamed out to God can help with because he has an only daughter, 12 years old, and she's dying. And the crowd as uncaring as ever. As Jesus went, the people pressed around him. Ever been on a subway in a major city? That's probably what it was like. See, if you go to one of these big cities and you take the T or you take the, you take the metro, the subway, what you learn to do is not make eye contact because it just invites social obligation to be a decent human. You look through people and beyond people to where you have to go, and 5,000 people are doing all the same thing at once. This is the same kind of thing that makes your commute difficult. One person has a real trouble. Someone has had a bad accident, and thousands of people are stopping to watch. They're not getting out of the way. They're not making it any, anything easier for Jesus. As he begins to go with Jairus, the crowd is pressing around him. And then another trouble emerges. Verse 43, there was a woman who had a discharge of blood for 12 years, and though she had spent all her living on physicians, she could not be healed by anyone. Luke's a medical doctor, and in his lean storytelling style, he tells you about a world of embarrassment in just a few words. She has a discharge of blood, he says. 
With that to go on, you can't be entirely sure what he's talking about, but it seems very likely that it's what I heard my grandmother call when I was a little boy, long before I was old enough to understand it, that someone in the family had female trouble. She's been bleeding for 12 years. No indoor plumbing, no modern-day hygiene and products. She's lived with that and that debilitating and embarrassing condition for over a decade. She hates it. She has spent everything that she has. A husband is not mentioned. A family is not mentioned. The woman is seen in the way Luke tells us about her life alone, contending with this. And it is something that has ruined her. It has cost her everything. And in her day, because of the ceremonial law of the Hebrew Scriptures, which you can find in your Bible... Every Saturday, while Jairus is in the synagogue, she cannot go because the ceremonial law was imposed on all the Israelites, men and women, and many things that, had, that were no one's fault and that were just a fact of dealing with life. People were temporarily barred from public worship, and she finds herself in that condition. It's been 12 years since she's been able to go with her community to worship God. It has cost her everything. She feels, I'm sure, a tremendous amount of embarrassment. And she's asked herself, as people do in suffering, what she has ever done to deserve this. And that's why verse 44 tells me that she comes in desperate faith to Jesus. Verse 44, she came up behind him and touched the fringe of his garment. And immediately her discharge of blood ceased. After the Saturday service, somebody loaned me a modern-day Jewish prayer shawl. We can't be sure what the garment that Jesus was wearing that day was like, but you'll notice these fringes and the long tassels on the corner. If you look in the Bible, in Numbers 15, God had told His people to put these fringes on the edges of their garments, and the tassels and the fringes were to remind them perpetually of His law. In other words, they literally couldn't get dressed in the morning without being reminded of God and His plans and His ways. He had created a civic and a social system that ruled everything in their lives to point them back to Him and primarily to tell them, I'm so high and holy, so separate and different from you, you cannot ever earn your way into my family. You have to come to me by faith. And if Jesus is wearing anything that resembles this, this woman comes through the middle of this callous, bustling, heavy-shouldered crowd, and she probably crawled and reached through the ankles of strangers and in faith reached out and touched one of those fringes, which are to remind people of the Word and the holiness and the commandments of God. What happened to her? She came up behind him and touched the fringe of his garment, and immediately her discharge of blood ceased. Then it gets a lot worse for her. Jesus said, who was it that touched me? When all denied it, Peter said, Master, the crowds surround you and are pressing in on you. Do you understand Peter's confusion? They're getting knocked around like a cork in a stream. He says, how, how can you ask who touched me? Everybody's touching you. 
Everybody's bumping into you. Everybody's in our way. We're doing our best to get you through this, to get you to Jairus' house, but you're just, you're surrounded. You're being pressed on from every side. But Jesus knows that something else has happened, and He draws it out. He gets to the story. He gets to the heart of the matter. Verse 46, but Jesus said, someone touched me, for I perceive that power has gone out from me. And I've thought about that sentence all week. And the Bible doesn't explain it. It's not Luke's point. But it gives you a glimpse of what it was like to be God in the flesh for Jesus when He was on earth. He is the very person of God. He is God. He is not sent by God alone. He is not on God's behalf. He is the Word become flesh. In other words, He is a real human being who gets tired and falls asleep in boats. He is a real human being who has the very character and nature of God Himself, all God, all man, and as He deals with this, He feels the healing power of God go from Him, reach this woman, touch her, change her, heal her, and He wants to know why. And it's very hard for her. When the woman saw that she was not hidden, she came trembling. And falling down before him, declared in the presence of all the people why she had touched him and how she had been immediately healed. And I can't begin to imagine, literally, I cannot begin to imagine the embarrassment. She tells him everything it's cost her, she tells him the exact nature of her disease. She says, When I touch the fringe of your garment, it stopped. For the first time in 12 years, I'm stopped. And did you notice, Luke's, again, not many details in biblical stories. Do you know, do you realize, rather, did you notice what she's doing while she tells this story? She's shaking from the fear of it, from the embarrassment of it, from the shame of it. And look how Jesus responds. He said to her, daughter, your faith has made you well. Go in peace. I think so many of us in America are coping with all kinds of trouble in all kinds of unhealthy ways because of shame. You may have heard about it. There's an opioid epidemic destroying this country. Many people fall into that through no fault of their own. They have surgery, and they very quickly become physically dependent on that. They find it impossible to stop taking those pills, but countless others reach for the pills first, not because of pain in their body, but because of psychic pain, pain in their soul. And some have chosen the way of numbness to escape from that. Others, beginning at the junior high level in the United States, the experts tell me right behind the opioid crisis is a stimulant crisis, where kids as young as 12 and 13 are doing their own ways in the name of this author to hone themselves into instruments of competition to stay up longer, to study harder, to achieve more, to get more done during the day, even though their bodies are not yet fully developed. They want to achieve and compete and succeed because they think, only if I do so much more than all of my peers, only then will I find success and significance and peace. 
And I want you to see how Jesus deals with the shame and the guilt that was wrapped around this woman in 12 years of suffering this weakness, suffering this embarrassment, and asking herself, where is God in all of this? Did you notice how he addressed her? She told her whole story, and he said, daughter. Dear ladies in this church, understand that because of the grace of Jesus, this is how the Father sees you. There is no shame, there is no guilt, there is no uncleanness in you. In Christ, you are God's beloved daughter. He reveals in a word what the Father's heart to her has always been. And He says, your faith, your trust in Me, that simple, desperate touch of trust has made you well. Go in peace. And just like that, she learned something about Jesus that she could no longer believe about God. But there's someone else in trouble. Remember him? Jairus has come and has fallen to the ground in front of Jesus. And I picture this respected man with his forehead on the ground and tears dripping down his face, maybe gasping for breath and explaining the situation. She's my only daughter. She's 12 years old. She's dying. Please come. Folks, would you please make way? It's life and death. It's my daughter. Would you please get out of the way? And Jesus, if you notice, has taken his sweet and godly time with all of this. If you were there, if you knew anything about medicine, you would say that Jesus is pretty lousy at triage, don't you think? Everybody familiar with the concept of triage? It's what's made most of us wait for so many hours at the ER. You come in with a broken leg, and if you're lucky, you're the worst thing in there, and they go right to you. But even as they begin to deal with you, if three guys come in clutching their chest and puking blood all over the ER, your broken leg can go sit over there and wait for a while because these people are clearly dying. Is Jesus bad at triage? It would seem like it. Can you imagine Jairus' perspective in all of this? What's he thinking about this woman? At best, honey, I'm happy for you, but my child is dying. And his worst fears are realized while he waits and watches with growing frustration all of this. Verse 49, while he was still speaking, someone from the ruler's house came and said, your daughter is dead. Do not trouble the teacher anymore. Boy. And I know as ancient history as ancient Jewish history, how short these accounts are, but any way you slice it, that's a cold pronouncement, don't you think? It's too late. She's dead. Don't bother him anymore. What's implicit in that? If Jesus could have arrived an hour earlier, all could have been saved, but she's dead now. No need to tell him. And I can't imagine the swirl of emotions and anger and desperation and hopelessness and guilt that he felt in that moment, that he came and he humbled himself publicly and he begged for his daughter's life and Jesus took all this time and now he's being told, too late, she's gone. Apple of your eye, gone, taken from you by death. But Jesus, on hearing this, answered him, do not fear only believe, and she will be well. Don't be afraid. 
Only believe, she will be well. And when he came to the house, he allowed no one to enter with him except Peter and John and James and the father and the mother of the child. And I love that verse because it tells me the crowd finally gets what it deserves. These callous, shouldering people who wouldn't get out of the way would do nothing to help. They're kept from seeing what Jesus does next. Only the core of His twelve disciples, the three closest to Him in this trembling, heartbroken mother and father, see what happens next. And all were weeping and mourning for her, but He said, look at the calm of Jesus, do not weep, for she is not dead, but sleeping. Now, is Jesus confused? No, He's using a first century euphemism for death. They say they sleep now. We say people rest now. Have you ever heard it said or said yourself that someone is resting in peace? It's just one of those gentler words that we use to deal with the severity and the finality of death. The crowd knows what's happening. Verse 53, they laughed at Him knowing that she was dead. And I'm fascinated by the crowds in these stories. They have no compassion for anyone. This frightened woman can't get through. She probably comes through to Jesus on all fours from behind him. Jairus can receive no compassion from the crowd. They press in on Jesus. They won't make way even though a child is dying. And now Jesus says, don't be afraid. Don't be troubled by any of this. Don't cry. She's not dead. She's sleeping. And just like that, the crowd turns and laughs Jesus to scorn. You poor, stupid man. You weren't here. You don't understand what's happened. You didn't hear the death rattle. You didn't see her first go stiff and then go limp. She's dead. But taking her by the hand, don't forget that. He called, saying, Child, arise. And her spirit returned, and she got up at once, and he directed that something should be given her to eat. And her parents were amazed. Can you imagine? But he charged them to tell no one what had happened. What's happening here? Jesus is dealing with people in all kinds of trouble, and he's telling both of them the same thing. Daughter, your faith has made you well. Go in peace. To Jairus, he says something similar. Do not fear. What's the next two words? Only believe. What you need to do in the middle of all this trouble is the hardest thing. You need to believe. You need to trust me. You need to have faith. Daughter, your trust in me has saved you. Jairus, don't be afraid. I understand that you are, but stop being afraid. Believe me, trust me, and she will be made well. What's going on here? This is an announcement of the good news of Jesus. Luke is taking you through his life, showing him in increasingly difficult circumstances, dealing with all kinds of trouble to tell you the good news. And he's telling you what kind of God, what kind of Savior Jesus is. It's hidden from our eyes because we weren't, we're not first century Jews. But it has a lot to do with the ceremonial uncleanness I've been telling you about. I bet you can imagine how it worked. The woman, through no fault of her own, is weakened and diseased and now financially broke, and her ceremonial uncleanness, which keeps her from worship until this is resolved, makes her unclean. She reaches out and touches Jesus. Can you imagine in your mind how the ceremonial law works? If an unclean person touches a clean person, guess what happens? Jesus Himself is unclean. You know what else was forbidden in the ceremonial law? 
Don't touch bodies. Don't touch corpses. They'll make you ceremonially unclean. For a time, you'll have to wait because you've come into contact with the dead. Did you notice how Jesus brings the girl back to life? What does He do? Look carefully at the details. He takes her. He takes a dead girl by the hand, and only then does He speak to her. She sits up perfectly alive, so alive, in fact, that Jesus then gives an instruction. What are His parents supposed to do now? Feed her. Apparently, being dead makes you hungry. Now, what's that about? That's love. It wasn't that she was stunned and half dead. She actually died, but now all of life has returned. She's not weakened. She's not dazed. She's just a little girl, as alive now as she ever has been. And what little girls need at all times in that stage of development, boys and girls, they need a meal, so feed her. And then he even says, don't tell anybody about this. Biblical scholars have debated for centuries why he said that. This may be it. Jesus has kept the crowds from saying this. He might be trying to preserve some normalcy for this little girl so that she's not the freak in her neighborhood for the rest of her life who was once dead and now has her life back. What do all these little details, carefully chosen from the many powerful things that Jesus did, what do these details tell us? They're a picture of the good news of the gospel. Here it is. Jesus gets dirty so that we can be clean. That's a very different offer from what religion makes you. Let me explain. Religion of all kinds, all the major world religions and every small little group of mystical people who are doing certain kinds of rituals somewhere in Southern California or Taos, New Mexico or wherever you find the increasingly mystical expression of American spiritual life, all of those religions have one path in common. They say, these are the rules, this is the stuff, these are the practices, do enough of this stuff long enough and you'll be cleansed. You'll be purified. You'll get better. If there is a God concept in the religion, if you do this stuff long enough, well enough, the God who is way up here, He will accept you. If the God is inside you already, if you do this stuff well enough and long enough, you'll discover that you are God or you're connected to God and you'll purge yourself, you'll cleanse yourself from all of these things and then finally you will be at peace. That's why microdoses of psychedelics are taking off in the Bay Area. That's why the titans of the tech industry that shape our lives through the amazing technology they create are soaked in stimulants and increasingly psychedelics because people are not at peace. They feel guilt. They feel shame. Like that honest interviewer, they actually have parts of themselves that they hate, and they're trying by every means available to cleanse themselves. And Jesus says, you don't have to, and in fact, you can't clean yourself up. I've come to do that. I've come to get down right into the muck and the mire and the dirt of life as it actually is. Not the false picture of everything is awesome life. No, I've come to life as it is to get right in the middle of it, to get dirty with it. In fact, to die in the midst of it so that you may have my life instead. The gospel is not your life improved. It is your life exchanged. 
It's the greatest trade that anyone could ever imagine. In fact, it defied any human understanding, including the people who had the Old Testament. They could not fathom a Savior like this. It's too good to be true, except that it is. A single verse tells me the gospel as well as anything in all the Bible. I'd like you to read it with me. 2 Corinthians 5.21. God made the one who did not know sin to be sin for us so that in Him we would become the righteousness of God. This is God acting in Christ and sending His Son. Watch. God made the one who did not know sin, only one human being in all of human history ever has or ever will be described in that way. Let's just turn the lens on ourselves. Do you know what sin is? Yes, you do as do I. I've looked right at sin and selfishness and more times than I'd like to admit, chosen it, and said, that's what I'm going to do. That's what feels good to me. That's what I think I'm entitled to. I'm doing it. And here's the announcement of the good news. God made the one who did not know sin to be sin for us. In other words, to so closely identify with our guilt and shame that it's as if Jesus Himself is the one who is taking all that on. He doesn't stand aloof. He comes right in the middle. He takes it all for us. And it's not just that He takes guilt and shame away. That's only one half of the exchange. He takes the sin, but read the rest of it, beginning with the word so. It says, so that in Him we would become the righteousness of God. He takes guilt and shame and in exchange gives you the righteousness of God Himself. This is heavy, mind-blowing, life-altering, life-reshaping, life-saving stuff. Let me ask you, those of you who know Jesus, do you understand yourself to be the righteousness of God? Isn't that hard to believe? Because you would say to yourself, yeah, you don't know me. And I would say to you, you don't know me. If you really did know me, you probably wouldn't let me preach to you. That's the reality of it. And one good thing in this last six months in American life, the facade, the veneer that everybody's putting out there seems to be cracking. And with the Me Too movement and every other sordid thing that suddenly has a spotlight on it, we're finally dealing with reality. Who sins? Everyone. Who feels shame? Everyone. Who is weighted down with guilt? Everyone. Here's the good news. God made the one who did not know sin to be sin for us so that in Him we would become instead the righteousness of God so that God could turn to you women and say, you're not only my creation, you are my beloved daughter. And your shame and your guilt that was nailed to the cross with my son. You're as much my daughter as Jesus is my son. Men, you're as much my son as my only begotten son, Jesus is. You stand on equal footing with him. He always is and always will be God, but he is now, amazingly, your big brother in the family of God. You have all the rights, all the righteousness of Jesus himself because he didn't come to improve your life. He came to exchange it. That's the good news. Jesus isn't your life coach. He's not a life hack. He's the Lord God Almighty who deals with life as it actually is and turns it all to salvation. Now, before we're done, let me tell you three things about this 
issue. It's not really a matter of whether Jesus can or will. The real question is whether we're going to trust Him. If you notice in dealing with both of these people, what he was calling for, what he drew out of the woman, and what he told Jairus to have was simple, just trust. Daughter, your faith has made you well. You trusted me, that's why you're saved. Jairus, I know this is brutal, don't be afraid, only believe. That's what he's trying to communicate to them. In the nitty-gritty of life, if, as I said a few weeks ago, If God in heaven, in His good timing and plan, hears this sermon from me and says, really, Bruce, let's see if you believe it. You preached it. Let's have a pop quiz and see if you believe it. Here are the practical things this story teaches me about what I need to trust when I find myself in suffering. First of all, I need to trust the mercy of Jesus. The woman crawled through the crowd and dared only touch his garment, not even his person, because she was afraid that he could not be that merciful. She thought, if a man this clean, if a man this good knows who I am, he'll have no time for me. You need to trust his mercy. The book of Lamentations explains it this way. If you're not familiar, the book of Lamentations is in the middle of the prophets, the major prophets. You can think of it as a funeral dirge. In Hebrew, it's a painstakingly crafted series of five poems. Four of them are alphabetic acrostics in the Hebrew alphabet. You can't see it in English. But through tremendous pain, as Jeremiah has witnessed the destruction of the capital and the genocide of his people, And in some of the most graphic language in the entire Bible, he tells you what ancient warfare looks like and how much it cost them, how bloody that conquest was, how terrible the scorched earth policy that the enemies of Jerusalem threw against it. In the middle of all that lament, he said this. Read it with me. The steadfast love of the Lord never ceases. His mercies never come to an end. They are new every morning. Great is your faithfulness. The Lord is my portion, says my soul. Therefore, I will hope in Him. New suffering every morning, the Lord's mercy will meet you there. New trouble, new challenges, the steadfast love of the Lord never ceases. If I could be personal for a moment without embarrassing any of you, some of you live lives that are so incredibly hard. There are families and singles in this church who get up to a life that would drive almost anybody crazy. It's so hard and so unrelenting. But you've learned to live it with such faith and love and trust for the Lord because you have discovered for yourself that the steadfast love of the Lord truly never ceases. That His mercies never come to an end. On the contrary, they're new every morning. And you have said with Jeremiah, great is your faithfulness. The Lord is my portion. I will hope, not in changing circumstances, I will hope in Him. That's trusting His mercy. Jairus teaches me a different lesson. Not only can I trust the merciful heart of God, I can also trust His timing. That's what infuriated Jairus. A woman has a terrible malady, but it can wait. In fact, it's waited for 12 years. This is a little girl dying. Sometimes when you're suffering, the hardest thing to trust is not the goodness of God, but the timing of God. 
Let's just make it practical. If you're in trouble, if you're upset, if you don't like your life as it is, when would you like it to be different? When would you like the suffering to be over? Immediately, if not yesterday, right? Look at what Peter, who would later die a martyr himself, wrote to Christians in the first century as Roman persecution begins to engulf them. Humble yourselves, therefore, under the mighty hand of God. It's a word picture, I believe. You're in a great deal of trouble. Take shelter. Run under the strong, mighty hand of God so that at the proper time He may exalt you, casting all your anxieties on Him because He cares for you. See the word picture? If you find yourself in trouble, the right thing to do is run under the sheltering hand of God so that at the proper time, the covering hand may come underneath you and lift you up out of that trouble. Well, the trouble in that verse for me is the proper time. For me, the proper time for it to stop hurting is right now. I'd like to get up from my knees in prayer and find the answer knocking on the front door, wouldn't you? What is the right time? God knows. The God of the mighty hand, He knows what the proper time is. He will exalt you in the way you humble yourself, Peter says, is casting all your anxieties on Him because He cares for you. It's a word play in Greek. Peter says, throw all your cares on God because He already cares for you. You don't have to walk around with all your cares. You can cast them on God and wait under His sheltering hand. That's what it means to trust His timing. Some of you trust the character of God. You're just not in love with His timing. You think He missed something. You think He missed a notification somewhere that this should have been over by now. Trust His timing. And finally, and this is the heart of Luke's message in all of these stories, trust His authority. Why these stories, bang, 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 one after another? Two reasons. They're historical. They actually happened. They happened in this way. But Luke wants you to see through his symphonic writing, this is Jesus who's in charge of everything. He's in charge of storms. He's in charge of demons. He's in charge of broken Ruined women who have embarrassing medical problems, he's even in charge of the dead. He can bid dead little girls to get up and invite them to have a good meal. And my point is, Jesus is in control, church, so you can trust him with everything. The question is not whether he will or whether he can. The question is what Jesus pressed on both people. Will you believe? Will you trust me? We're going to close and pray now, and then we're going to celebrate communion together. Can I invite you to pray? There's two kinds of people in trouble in this room, and depending on the day, I can be in one of those groups. The first is people like me who know the Lord, love the Lord, you've given Him your life, you've trusted Him, you believe He is the Son of God, but you find yourself in so much trouble that you find it difficult in the middle of all that to continue to trust Him. You're beginning to question His mercy, or you've held on to His mercy, but you're, you're just so confused about His timing. Could I invite you to turn those cares over to Jesus? There's tears and trembling in both of these stories. 
Could you turn to Jesus and say, here it is. Here's my fears. Here's the worst things about me. Here's the guilt and the shame that you died for. Thank you, Lord. You've made me the righteousness of God. Because you've done all that, I can trust you with these circumstances. The other group, for those who have been maybe watching Jesus, admiring Jesus, you're interested in Jesus, but you haven't trusted him. You've been doing the religious thing. Some religious group, some moral code of your own devising, like a guy used to tell me for years, I try to do the right things for the right reason. That's an individual religion. It won't work. You'll never clean yourself up. It can't happen. You'll never be good enough. The guilt and the shame, it'll always be with you until you turn and give it to Jesus. And if you haven't, that's my invitation to you. To give up on yourself, give up on your moral code, give up on these religious ideas, and trust Jesus to save you. And if you do, just call out to Him in prayer and say, Lord, I'm afraid, I'm embarrassed, I'm ashamed, I have all this sin, but I'm turning to You, and I'm asking You, I'm trusting You to save me. I'm sorry for my sin, forgive me for it. Take this life of mine, give me Your life instead. If you do that, let us know on the card before you go home. Turn it in in the basket or at the table. Lord, move among us. There are troubles here that I don't even know. The ones that I do sometimes take my breath away, the difficulty that people can find themselves in. Thank you that you're in charge of everything. Your mercy is unfailing. And your timing, even as we question it, is always good. I pray, God, for those who are turning to you for, for salvation in this service, that you would give them conviction and humility to turn to you, and then their beautiful assurance that you have received them and welcomed them into the family of God. In Jesus' name.